I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The evening of June the 30th, 1997 was a typically rainy one in Hong Kong. And even though the gathered dignitaries were forced to huddle beneath blue and yellow umbrellas, the downpour didn't dampen the pomp of the occasion, the handover ceremony. Just before the stroke of midnight, the British national anthem, God Save the Queen, played out one final time. The moment marked the end of Britain's rule in Hong Kong. Chris Patton, the last colonial governor, addressed the crowd, filled not only with presidents, prime ministers and princes, but thousands of Hong Kongers too. No dependent territory has been left more prosperous. None with such a rich texture and fabric of civil society. Professions, churches, newspapers, charities, civil servants of the highest probity and the most steadfast commitment to the public good. He concluded his speech with a pledge. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. That is the promise, and that is the unshakable destiny. As the Union Jack was lowered, in its place rose Hong Kong's new five-petaled orchid flag, and alongside that, the star-speckled scarlet banner of China. Since 1997, that rich texture and fabric of civil society has been chipped away by the Chinese Communist Party. The free press is muzzled, most prominent Democrats are in prison or exiled, and the promise that Hong Kongers would be able to choose their own representatives has been squashed. Now, as Hong Kong prepares to mark 25 years since the handover, it seems the unshakable destiny is far from being fulfilled. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what's the future for Hong Kong? In this episode, I'll be exploring how Hong Kong went from being a prosperous society imbued with liberal values to what it is today, a police state. We'll also find out what lies ahead as John Lee, the new chief executive, is being sworn in by China's President Xi Jinping this week. I'll talk to Su Lin Wong, the Economist's China correspondent, about how China wound its ever-tightening grip around Hong Kong. And I'll speak to Nathan Law, a leading figure in the 2014 pro-democracy umbrella movement. Today, because of the territory's draconian national security law, he is forced into exile. But my first guest is Chris Patton, now Lord Patton, that last governor, who encouraged democracy but found many obstacles in his way, not only from the Chinese, but from his own side too. 
Lord Patton, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks very much. It's nice to be appearing rather than just reading. Now, you served as the last British governor of Hong Kong from 1992 to 1997. And you've said before that Hong Kong was unlike any other British colony. In what way? In this way, particularly, that we weren't preparing it for independence because Hong Kong had been acquired, I mean, ways one wouldn't justify now, partly through a grant, but part of it, the larger part territorially, which is where there are now seven cities, the new territories, was acquired through a 99-year lease. So it was always going to go back to China. Occasionally in the 60s and 70s, British ministers or governors had talked a bit about democratic development in, in Hong Kong. They'd been told pretty sharply, including by Cho Enlai, that they shouldn't give Hong Kong any idea that it was going to be independent like Singapore or Malaysia one day, because it wasn't. It was going back to the, quote, motherland, unquote. So it was different in that sense, that we weren't firing it off into outer space, hoping it would go into, into orbit as an independent country. But we were firing it into outer space and hoping it would dock with the motherland. When you arrived in post, what did you and the British government want to achieve in the years before the handover if, as you suggest, it was inevitable, there wasn't anything to be done about that lease running out? What did you think you could affect? Well, what I thought we should do, it was twofold. First of all, to fill in some of the gaps in the joint declaration, which was the treaty between Britain and China and the basic law, which was the constitution based on it, fill in some of the gaps in order to make Hong Kong as democratic as we could without actually breaking the agreement. And I also wanted to hand over a Hong Kong in which um, the people of Hong Kong had been involved in discussing their destiny, what was to happen to them. So I wanted to talk to people in Hong Kong um, before I actually took proposals to London and and Beijing. And that is something which I think the Chinese communists hated even more than any democratic development because they thought it was constructing what they called the three-legged stool. They thought that Britain and China should decide those things and not anybody in Hong Kong. I used to point out to them that the problem with two-legged stools is they tended to fall over. The terms of the handover were based on the Joint Declaration, which was a treaty agreed between Britain and China in 1984 and it hinged on that now famous idea of one country, two systems, and Hong Kong would have a high degree of autonomy and freedoms of speech, press, assembly, etc., in order to preserve its way of life. And that led to the, the basic law or the mini constitution of Hong Kong. But how hamstrung did you feel you were by the joint declaration? And the negotiations, were, the framework was pretty much set by that, wasn't it? Yes, it was. But there was a certain amount of room for, for manoeuvre, not least, for example, in the electoral arrangements. Part of the elections were done in what we call functional constituencies, which were in effect like rotten pocket boroughs. And what we did is, was to clean them up and increase the number of people able to vote in them. And we also did as much as we could with the direct elections without actually increasing the number of directly elected seats. But th there was constraint, as you say. Somebody once, once said that we should put panes of glass in the window so that people would know if China was smashing them to destroy Hong Kong's basic rights and civil liberties. And I think we managed to do that as well. 
Was it a folly, though, to think that China would preserve Hong Kong's values and way of life at all when the direct opposite was the case for mainland Chinese citizens? And I just wondered if you could give us a bit of a flavour of the conversations that you had on those very difficult matters with the Chinese side. Well, I think you've hit several nails on their heads with that question. The question I've often thought about over the years is whether when the Chinese Communist Party said it, it, we wanted Hong Kong to remain as it was, whether they actually knew what it was. But teaching them about something like the rule of law was, was very difficult. I remember a conversation that I had with my opposite number in Beijing, Liu Ping, trying to describe to him the rule of law and saying that when I'd been a British minister, um, I was regularly as environment secretary taken to court and wouldn't know whether I was going to lose or not. They thought I was kidding. Um, that that couldn't possibly be the case. But we have laws, um, Liu Ping said. So I said, you have rule by laws. You don't have the rule of law. And there's a fundamental difference. Um, and I think that was just one example of the extent to which they really misunderstood what they were signing up to. In your book, your new book, The Hong Kong Diaries, you write very candidly about your time and those that kind of conversation that you're referring to. But looking back, do you think there's anything that you could have done differently? Yes, I do. I think that I should have spent less time negotiating with the Chinese, hoping that sooner or later they'd give some ground and uh, go along with what we wanted to do. They did keep negotiations going, hoping that sooner or later uh, we'd be persuaded by the business community or others to give up. I mean, another view is that Britain could have introduced democratic reforms to Hong Kong earlier than the 1990s. It could have had a a, a longer run-up. Things could have been better embedded there. And also that more Hong Kong residents could have been given citizenship after the handover. Do you think, is this... Wise after the event, or were these options that were playing on your mind at the time? No, it wasn't wide after the event. I arrived in 1992. The joint declaration had been signed in the mid-1980s. When it was signed, uh, there were some people, including some who subsequently became supporters of, of China, having, I think, been let down by the Brits in their view. Uh, some people thought we should have an arbitration mechanism built into the joint declaration. They were argued out of that on the grounds that caused a row with China. I think we could have done more in the 1980s than we did. Before that, um, I think that argument I mentioned earlier that they always put to us that Hong Kong wasn't being prepared for, uh, for independence, but to be returned to China's motherland, and that should constrain anything we did. But regularly an argument that one heard, which was, I think, insulting, that people in Hong Kong weren't interested in politics, they were only interested in making money. Now, you've only got to hear a discussion between the Cantonese or a press conference in Cantonese to know that is a million miles from the truth. And people in Hong Kong had been uh, increasingly well-educated. People were um, had, had read all the greatest books of political literature on democracy. They knew about democracy, and then when they witnessed Tiananmen Square, they saw the, the results of the opposition to democracy. And my goodness, they wanted to have more control over their own lives. The idea that Hong Kong people would run Hong Kong, this was something that you said explicitly at the time of the handover, you said it's a promise, it's an unshakable destiny. Did you believe that to be true? Or was it at best a hope and an encouragement? A bit of both. I hoped it would happen and thought it was in 
China's interest to allow it to happen. But the introverted Chinese leadership clearly came to believe that Hong Kong represented all those elements of a liberal society which were a threat to a totalitarian party. And the more that happened, I think the more they, they regarded Hong Kong and its freedoms as a real threat to their ability to hold on to power. Well, that was really, I think, what, what I was hinting at, which is this sense that democracy in Hong Kong would inevitably inflame tensions with China. And although it seems a bit thankless, uh, given the bravery of those who have protested for so long and, and held up that hope for Hong Kong, would they have had, in a sense, a quieter, maybe a different, better future if they kept their heads down? Was it in vain? No, I th I think it's it's a counsel of despair to say that um, you should give up any hope of continuing to live in a free and open society because it'll cause trouble if you if you argue for the sort of freedoms which um, an educated population should look forward to. I think what we've what, what's happened over the years is we've made an assumption about escaping from the middle income trap, um, which assumes a sort of umbilical cord between economic growth and political change. Now, it is true that in most societies where people have got better off, there is that sort of Marxist link um, which produces political change, but it isn't inevitable and it doesn't always happen. You know this city so well. What's your resounding memory? Is it the smell? Is it the taste? Is it the particular part of Hong Kong? What do you look back on? I used to write occasionally travel pieces about Hong Kong, about wandering around some of the back streets, seeing a barber cutting people's hair in the street, seeing somebody sitting under a tree smoking away. I made friends, huge numbers of friends. I liked walking in the new territories. Um, the music scene was good. There was good jazz. There was good classical music. And the people were ebullient and cheerful and funny. And I wished I spoke Cantonese because they were great punsters with their language. And when I was leaving um, and going on board uh, Britannia and saying goodbye to people on the side of the quay um, with the Prince of Wales, he said to me as we went up onto the ship, did you play tennis with everybody in Hong Kong? And it sometimes felt like that. It was an incredibly happy time of our lives. I'd said to my youngest daughter, who did most of her secondary education in Hong Kong, and very good it was too, when she was leaving London in tears, I bet you'll be in tears when you come back and from leaving Hong Kong, and she was. As Chris Patton waved goodbye to Hong Kong on the 1st of July 1997 from the deck of the Royal Yacht Britannia, his departure marked the end of British colonial rule. And for six million Hong Kongers, a new dawn was breaking. I think a lot of people were pretty nervous in the lead up to the handover. Su Lin Wong is The Economist's China correspondent and she's been writing about the significance of Hong Kong's post-handover period. Many people started making plans to migrate, were expecting that overnight Hong Kong would become like a Chinese city, and that just wasn't what happened at all. In fact, Hong Kong remained pretty much as it was. I went to look in our archives, and we ran a cover on how Hong Kong can change China in late June of 1997. 
And of course, that was like very, very optimistic of The Economist. But I think that was a view held by many Democrats in Hong Kong. And many of them thought that maybe Hong Kong could change China as well. So it was a time of optimism. Was there any sense of a sudden change after the handover? Or was this more a creeping alteration in the relationship? I think it was more the latter. So I think there was more of a creeping alteration. If I had to point to one moment, it was when the Chinese Communist Party put out an incredibly boring white paper in 2014, which said that China had comprehensive jurisdiction over Hong Kong. And so what that meant was that basically the party had the ultimate say over all kinds of aspects of Hong Kong. And for people who sort of followed the Communist Party, to them, that was a very, very important sign and a very, very worrying one for those who believed in a more democratic future for the city. And how did the Chinese Communist Party then go about boosting influence in Hong Kong during those years. I went in and out, I would say, from about 2014 onwards. It was very noticeable that there would be a kind of script that people would sometimes almost rehearse to you if they'd taken the arguments on board of the Communist Party, in the elites, in business. Was this programmatic? Yeah, and actually it started way before 2014. In the years leading up to the handover, China sent over 80,000 Communist Party officials, clandestinely sent them to Hong Kong, got them permanent residency, and then they got jobs in key positions in the Hong Kong government. And we saw the Communist Party build up its presence at a grassroots. So there were thousands of new civil society organizations that ostensibly were just civil society organizations, but in fact were fronts for the party. It recruited party members. So one expert I interviewed estimates that there are 400,000 Communist Party members in Hong Kong who are all underground, and that's about 5% of the population. And yet, People just had no idea of the scale of the infiltration. And it wasn't just infiltration. The party attempted to cultivate the business community, academics, think tanks. And at first, they weren't that successful. But little by little, they became much more successful. Things changed in 2012 when Xi Jinping rose to power in Beijing. What was the impact of that? What vision did he bring to the question or the problem from Beijing's point of view of Hong Kong and how to handle it. So in the five years leading up to Xi Jinping becoming the leader of China, he was the head of the party's main group that decided policy for Hong Kong. So he very, very closely followed developments in Hong Kong. Once he became leader in mainland China, he launched a major revitalization of China's national security complex. And national security in China isn't so much about terrorism and external threats the way we understand it in the West. It's much more about protecting the party's grip on power. Uh, And so Hong Kong, with its history of protest and independent identity, was soon viewed less as an engine of growth and more as a site of subversion and disloyalty from the perspective of the party. And what was the balance then in Xi Jinping's mind about this? Because if you're in the Chinese leadership, you have, as you say, this engine of growth, the buzz of Hong Kong, which those of us who are fortunate enough to to visit it before the clampdown was as strong as it is now. It just had this freewheeling feel to it. And that, in some ways, was quite useful. That's probably what our cover uh, back in 97 was alluding to. So what is the balance, do you think, in the minds of the Chinese leadership between let's hang on to this and see what we can get from it, and maybe in some ways copy, and the desire to close it down and to 
to make things more uniform along the lines uh, of the mainland? I think that's a great question because that calculation shifted over time. At the time of the handover, Hong Kong's economy was one-fifth of China's. Now it's less than 3%. So I think the calculations changed for the Communist Party. Hong Kong used to be Asia's world city. That was sort of one of its taglines. And I think particularly some Western business and people who weren't so sure that the party was going to crush Hong Kong, sort of said, you know, the party is never going to give up on the goose that lays the golden eggs. It's going to protect China's gateway to the world. And what they didn't factor in was that once the party started seeing Hong Kong as a threat to its power, then it didn't really matter if it was laying hundreds of golden eggs. It was much more important to clamp down on Hong Kong. And the screws began to tighten first on tycoons, what would you say was the pecking order of the groups that they found most risky in the society? I think the Communist Party really understands leverage and it understands where power lies. And it realised that it needed to cultivate the tycoons, business, academics, think tank types, politicians, judges. And I remember when I was covering the protests in 2019 in Hong Kong, I used to hear over and over again from Hong Kongers that the party doesn't understand Hong Kong. Like, they don't get what the students want. If they did, there wouldn't be millions of young people on the streets. And in a way, that's true. The party didn't understand young people, but it did understand where power lay in Hong Kong society. Talk us through the protest movement, if you could, which starts with 2,000 protests in 2002 to more than 7,000 20 years later. And those moments of excitement that hit the global news as the umbrella revolution gets going in 2014. What stood out for you as the inflection points? Well, Hong Kong has a very long and rich history of protests, which you can actually trace all the way back to the late 60s. But maybe if we fast forward to the 2000s, there was a huge protest in 2003 against the government's proposal to introduce an anti-subversion law. More than half a million people protested. And another milestone was in 2014 with the Umbrella Movement, where we saw huge amounts of civil disobedience and a whole generation who was animated by this tradition of protest in Hong Kong. And that really fed the 2019 protests, which kicked off mid-year when the Hong Kong government tried to introduce an extradition bill that would see people facing criminal charges potentially being sent to the mainland to stand trial. And that really struck a chord with Hong Kongers, many who have family in the mainland and have strong ties to the mainland and understand um, how dangerous it is if, if you're sort of caught up in the mainland Chinese legal system where there is no presumption of innocence. The wave of protests that surged through Hong Kong in 2014 seemed unstoppable. It was the people versus the party, and increasingly the police. Hong Kong has long been renowned for peaceful protest, so it came as a shock when security forces responded aggressively to pro-democracy unrest. Nathan Law was one of the student leaders of the so-called Umbrella Movement, named after the colourful protection demonstrators carried against police pepper spray. For 79 days, thousands of people occupied Hong Kong's busiest districts. Their demand, more autonomy from the mighty neighbour next door. And for Nathan, 
this was also a story closely tied to his own family history. He was born in 1993 in Shenzhen in Guangdong province. His family left for Hong Kong when Nathan was six. I was very young when I lived in mainland China. The only memory that I had was my mother was riding bicycle to take me to kindergarten. And other than that, I really don't have much memories about it. And I moved to Hong Kong when I was six years old, when my father was already in Hong Kong as a breadwinner to, to earn enough money to support us. And my father came to Hong Kong in the late 70s when there was a um, lack of food in his village. And the only hope to survive was to escape and to immigrate to Hong Kong. So he took a very dangerous boat trip and um, he saw a lot of floating bodies on the sea. And finally he arrived and Hong Kong meant refuge and hope for him. And that was what Hong Kong meant to many people of previous generation who crossed the border illegally and settled in Hong Kong. And with that family background, how would you describe a Hong Kong identity as distinct from a mainland Chinese one? There are many distinct differences in between living in Hong Kong and living in China. We use different languages, we use different characters, we've been through different sets of history, we have different ways of looking into the world as Hong Kong is heavily influenced by a more cosmopolitan and international culture. Hong Kong people have a unique identity because of these differences and we are proud to be a Hong Konger. It doesn't mean that we necessarily oppose the influence of the Chinese culture or China as a country, but most of us have a pursuit for democracy, freedom, and these are the values and, and, and beliefs the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese authority want to erase and they don't like. And you've said no one chooses to become a dissident to dissent is a reaction. So what led you onto that path? My father was a construction worker. My mother was a street cleaner. They didn't tell me about politics. I would call that as a refugee mentality, even though they left mainland China because of economic might or political turmoil initiated by the Chinese Communist Party. But what they want is a stable life. They don't want to rock the boat. So they tell their children not to get involved in politics, just focus on your studies and graduate and get a good job. And that was my education. So I didn't really think about myself becoming a politician, becoming an activist. Rather, it was a reaction to the injustice the Chinese government imposed to Hong Kong that they betrayed the promises to democracy, to freedom, and they have been persecuting different activists and reforming the city that we can barely recognise. And you became one of the co-leaders of the Umbrella Movement in 2014 when it led so many people out onto the streets. Just remind us of what the movement was standing for and what you wanted to achieve. And then we, we might look at what you feel you did achieve and, and what its successes were, but also where it failed. In 2014, um, there were hundreds of thousands of people occupying the major runways of Hong Kong for a universal suffrage in Hong Kong because we've never had the opportunity to elect our city's own leader and we've never had a democratically elected uh, legislature. So at that point, we felt like Beijing should keep their promise and implement democracy in Hong Kong. At that time, we had the very first massive civil disobedience actions in Hong Kong's history. 
at the time we felt like there was a chance or a window that Beijing may feel like they feel the pressure and and they may consider implementing democracy in Hong Kong. Afterwards, we we definitely felt like that was a wishful thinking. Um, We didn't have the influence, the pressure, or we didn't have the international support to make Beijing to have concession. It sounds in a sense that though you gave so much of your young life to this with those you were protesting alongside and leading, the the umbrella movement ultimately failed in what it wanted to do. There was no greater representation at the end of it than at the beginning, and the movement itself splintered. I mean, did it leave any positive legacy, or do you just put that down to youthful experience and being up against a ruthless and very mighty Chinese state on the other side? Definitely, at the end of the umbrella movement, we didn't get what we wanted, which is the democracy for Hong Kong. But I think it was just one of the events on on this long history of fighting for democracy. It was a process. And I think in that process, Hong Kong people learned the idea of civil disobedience. For us, we understood that we needed to have commitment and perseverance and sometimes sacrifice to achieve what we wanted. At the end of the day, it was a huge civil education, making the idea of civil disobedience ingrained in Hong Kong civil society and prepare for more and more challenges and protests in the future. And you were elected to the Legislative Council at 23. I think you were the youngest lawmaker in Hong Kong's history, even though you were disqualified uh, almost immediately. What made you want to join the legislature in the first place, given that that was obviously going to be a pressure point? I believe that by joining the legislature, uh, becoming part of the so-called system, that it can facilitate my protests um, outside of the system and make myself heard more and, and speak louder. So that was the idea that even though I was in the legislature, and my first and foremost identity would always be an activist. Becoming a legislator is to help my activism. That seat didn't last long. I only served the people for nine months because Beijing disqualified me. But I would say that I felt proud of representing my people and speaking up for them. And in 2017, you went to jail for your involvement in the umbrella movement. What was the experience in prison like? And what what did that perhaps signal to you about the way things were going to go for the opposition? I was actually very lucky that I only served a few months in jail. When you look at the sentencing now, is years. So for me, I, I felt very fortunate. And at that period of time when I was in jail, I didn't receive physical abuses or physical torture. But I could definitely sense that I was treated not as a human, but as a number. There had been a lot of dehumanizing environment and and activities that we have to carry out. For example, when I talked to the prison guard, I could only say, yes, sir, thank you, sir, and sorry, sir. I was called by numbers, not by name. And I was moved like a commodity from one place to another, and I work like a robot, even though it was not a very heavy loaded work. So for me, it was an, an experience that we can sense The government tries to blunt your sharpness, try to erase your critical thinking. And as an activist, uh, we 
needed to navigate ourselves and try to remain very critical and, and that understanding that we cannot be changed even though we are trapped in this system. And in 2019, huge demonstrations erupted again in, in Hong Kong, even more intense, this time after plans to allow extradition to mainland China became the flashpoint. You were active in those protests. What do you think that the influence could have been there in, in terms of Hong Kong's leadership? Because it really was a, a different inflection point. And, and I suppose we're looking back now to 2019 as a period before the pandemic. But was it the last moment of real hope for liberal change in Hong Kong? At the beginning of the protest, we've got more than 2 million people marching down the, down the streets. In a city with 7.5 million population, and it was such a powerful thing that if you imagine in any big cities in the world, if there were more than a quarter of the population coming out, what would happen in the government? We definitely had hope our actions could change something in concrete. And many people saw that as the last battle and the most important battle in the fight for civil rights in Hong Kong's history. But at the end of the day, we're facing the largest and most powerful um, totalitarian regime. We are talking about a dictator that can have much more resources than a group of protesters in Hong Kong. And I don't think at the end of the day, all these actions were coming out because we believe that we will succeed. I think many of them committed these actions because they just felt like it was something right to do. Is there sounds in this huge silence and and this is the only way that they can feel they were alive? Those protests were silenced in 2020 by the outbreak of COVID-19. Do you think that had a material impact on the pro-democracy movement? It certainly meant that a new national security law gave sweeping powers to Beijing to crush dissent. So was it a moment when you thought we have to put up our hands and accept that meaningful opposition is at an end? COVID pandemic was definitely a way for the government to expand its power and continue that emergency power in order to block all the public gatherings. And on the other hand, the implementation of the national security law caused any meaningful opposition and also criminalized free speech so that in Hong Kong, by making a political statement, it could already put you in jail for years. These measures definitely made massive protests in Hong Kong almost impossible. And for many people, they just had to adopt this new reality and find some other ways of conducting activism. I don't think Hong Kong people for now, they have given up or they felt like there's no future. But yes, the room for political opposition is getting much narrower. And for example, after the election overhaul in the legislative council system, for now, we don't have any pro-democracy legislators. And this is already a new reality that we have to accept and we just have to fight with. You've been in exile in the UK since 2020 and trying to gather international support for the democracy movement in Hong Kong. Which countries do you think have done a good job at standing up for the citizens of the territory? And given that you've suggested that it's an unequal battle, the power balance is so strongly against the opposition, what do you think outside countries can really do to help? Indeed, we've seen a drastic change on many countries' China policy after 2019, especially the scandals of Xinjiang concentration camp and also 
the massive protests and police brutality in Hong Kong. And we've seen that change in the US and the United Kingdom, that they have implemented policies to curtail China's influence to compete with them. And we have seen a more sluggish reaction from European Union, which are heavily reliant on, on exports to China market and maintaining a good relationship with them in order to keep the economy going. For me, we definitely have to be aware that for the past decades of democratic recession, one of the major reasons is we have not developed any mechanism to hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable. And for now, they are just expanding their influence across border. They are erasing freedoms in Hong Kong and also eroding freedoms around the world by their economic might and blackmailing. And for now, it's really for the country to stand up and amass enough resources to decrease reliance on China. And I think for now, we're not doing enough. If we continue to be complacent, then I would believe that democracy in our homeland and the influence of the free world will be diminished and will be attacked. Tomorrow, the 1st of July, looms large in the calendars of Hong Kongers. Not only is it the 25th anniversary of the 1997 handover, but it's the halfway mark of a pledge by Beijing that the city's way of life shall remain unchanged for 50 years. So what does this July the 1st herald? It's the day that John Lee, an ex-policeman and security chief, takes over the leadership of the city. He was the sole candidate offered by the Chinese Communist Party and is being rewarded for bearing down on Hong Kong's freedoms, the extradition bill that forced many democracy activists like Nathan Law from their homes. Su Lin Wong, our China correspondent, has been analysing what Hong Kong can expect under Mr Lee's sway. I think it sends a very strong signal that this is the very first time an ex-policeman and someone who is deeply embedded in Hong Kong security services is going to lead the city. But in a sense, it doesn't really matter who the leader of Hong Kong is because it's now the Communist Party that's calling all the shots. And in fact, my friends across the border in mainland China have this joke, which is that Hong Kong is now just a town in Guangdong province and the chief executive of Hong Kong is just the city's mayor And in fact, it's the Communist Party secretary that matters a lot more to the future of Hong Kong. And as Beijing is so clearly tightening its grip on the city and COVID restrictions are still in place as well. But do you think the people who can leave will do so? How is the population changing as a result of what's happened? We've seen hundreds of thousands of Hong Kongers leave or make plans to leave. But interestingly, last year in 2021, net outflows of people were less than 10,000. And that's because there are a lot of people from mainland China migrating to Hong Kong. In fact, since the handover, more than a million mainland Chinese have migrated to Hong Kong. And Hong Kongers talk about this Hong Kong blood transfusion or this idea of keeping Hong Kong, but not Hong Kongers. What future Do you see for Hong Kong and any sense of distinctiveness remaining in place? I think Hong Kong will increasingly resemble another big mainland Chinese city. And to be clear, I don't think Hong Kong is dead. 
I think it will continue to flourish in in very specific ways, especially for businesses that have very, very strong links to the mainland. But I don't think we're going to see uh, Hong Kong full of protest and a vibrant civil society and a free press. The Hong Kong we, we knew a couple of years ago has vanished and is not coming back. That Hong Kong of a few years ago is never far from the mind of Nathan Law, the exiled activist. He's facing the prospect of never being able to return to the city he, like many others, sacrificed so much for. I've always dreamed about Hong Kong, dreamed about the neighbourhood that I grew up and all sorts of things. I believe that what I'm doing is paving my way home and I firmly believe that there's one day that I can go back to the city I love and where I dedicated to protect that um, when it's free and democratic. It may take decades or decades, but I do believe that there will be one day that I can go home and probably at the end of the day to be buried at that place. And do let me know what you think, what's in store for Hong Kong as it enters its next chapter. And as well as your memos on the future, I would like any postcards you'd like to send us from the past. Were you, for instance, at the 1997 handover? What do you remember from that rainy evening? Or what have your experiences been of Hong Kong since? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. To read Su Lin Wong's full essay on Hong Kong, why not become a subscriber? Listeners can take advantage of our special introductory offer. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. And the sound engineer is Timo Seiler. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.